I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jeff Burnside. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 7th, 2019. Coming up, we'll discuss plastic pollution on land and sea and what's being done to solve the problem. Our guests are Dr. Jenna Jembeck. She's an associate engineering professor at the University of Georgia. And Laura Parker, a staff writer at the National Geographic magazine who covers climate change and oceans. Welcome our guest host, Jeff Burnside. He's a TV reporter who's worked in Seattle and Miami. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me today and hopefully in the future. Well, you're welcome. It's great to be here. So we'll begin with some brief science calendar items. This Thursday night at the Boulder Bookstore, journalist Leonard David will talk about his new book called Moonrush, the New Space Race. David will sign his new book as well as his 2016 book, Mars, Our Future on the Red Planet, available for the book signing. David is a journalist who has reported on space activities for more than 50 years. The event will begin at 7.30 Thursday night, so for more information, go to boulderbookstore.com and click on Events. And here's a science event that comes with beer. Want to learn more about genetic testing and gene sequencing? There'll be a Science on Tap event next Monday night, May 13th, in Colorado Springs. In the age of genetic testing and genome sequencing, many companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe offer services to determine which versions of genes, called alleles, customers have. And if the specific alleles an individual has are associated with specific traits, or perhaps even predispose them to disease. But how do scientists actually figure out which genes are associated with specific traits or diseases? In this session of Science on Tap, a researcher will discuss how the use of model organisms, such as worms and fruit flies, has shaped our knowledge of the genetic basis of human diseases. The speaker is Dr. Eugenia Oleniski Killian. She's an associate professor of biology at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Her research focuses on understanding how the disruption of gene regulation results in neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative disease. For more info, go to coolscience.org. Listening to KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jeff Burnside. You've probably heard by now that our oceans are populated by more pounds of plastic waste than fish. It's staggering. It's a sadly common for beachcombers and otherwise gorgeous uh, coastal vacation sites around the world. All along the beaches, you see clamshells and sand dollars, but there are more often plastic bottles, bottle caps, flimsy bags, or fishnets washed up on shore. In fact, about a third of all plastic is produced and does not get properly collected. Instead, they end up in the ocean or in the stomach of innocent albatross or other birds and sea mammals. Consider this sobering estimate from a study by the World Economic Forum. If we keep producing and recklessly tossing out plastics at predicted rates, the weight of all plastics in the ocean will outstrip the weight of all fish by mid-century. What's worse, it'll take 
let's say, 450 years or forever for plastic to thoroughly biodegrade. Plastic waste just breaks down into smaller and smaller bits, causing harm to fish and potentially humans. And scientists, engineers, policymakers, and others are working hard to better understand the causes and effects of plastic pollution and to create solutions. So our two guests today are leading efforts to assess the problem, to educate people about it, and to affect positive change. Dr. Jenna Jembeck is an associate engineering professor at the University of Georgia. She authored a seminal peer-reviewed paper in 2015 that estimated how much plastic waste is in the ocean. Jembeck and her colleagues have been working to develop sustainable and innovative practices for managing solid waste, including practice plastics. Also joining us is Laura Parker, a staff writer at National Geographic magazine. She specializes in covering climate change and marine environments, and she's reported on plastics for at least five years now. She recently won a Scripps Howard Magazine Award for her June 2018 National Geographic cover article titled Planet or Plastics. Laura, welcome to How on Earth. Good morning. And Dr. Jambeck, we'll call you Jenna now. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to jump in. Uh, Jenna, how about for you, Dr. Jambeck? How bad is the problem of plastic waste pollution? And it, is it really safe to say this is a crisis? You know, I, I think uh, it has it has reached uh, that point, and um, according to the research that we published in 2015, which is currently the baseline estimate of what we think is going into the ocean, um, we looked at 192 countries around the world that have a coastline um, that mismanaged waste on land, uh, especially then the plastic um, could be washed or blown into the ocean, and our estimate is 8 million metric tons of plastic entering the ocean every year. Um, and that's equal, you know, a hard number to envision. So yeah, it is. If you, yeah, if you want to, we converted that to a volume. So if you think of that, it's equal to about a dump truck of plastic entering the ocean every minute. Every minute. Whew. And Laura Parker, how, how did it get so bad? I mean, give us a little background on plastic and how it got so ubiquitous in our society. Well, there are several factors involved. Uh, first is that production of plastics really accelerated rapidly after World War II, and the market shifted to making consumer products. Mm -hmm. And in that era, it was all marketed around the idea of convenience. Uh, you can throw it away. This will make your life easier and save you time. But Production grew so rapidly that in, in, you know, no industry could really keep up with the pace. And uh, the largest market today for plastics is packaging material. It, is, it accounts for almost half of the waste generated, and most of it never gets recycled or incinerated. And we're paying the price for this throwaway society. So what are some of the worst offenders that these surveys have found? The single-use plastic bags and containers gets all the headlines. But what, what are the worst? Well, in 2017, uh, that was the first year in the Ocean Conservancy's uh, uh, beach cleanups where all of the items collected on beaches around the world, uh, all of the top ten items were plastics. And uh, the number one item is the uh, plastic filter on cigarettes, mm. but that's followed by food wrappers, uh, plastic bottles, plastic bottle caps, and plastic grocery bags. Uh, the other items uh, that would be after that would be straws, other kinds of plastic bags, plastic lids, takeout containers, and faux 
foam food containers. And I'm curious, how about Jenna Jembeck, if this is for you, and if not, um, Laura, feel free to chime in, but I'm curious, like how much, roughly what percent of plastic is wasted versus recycled or, well, bioplastics we can get into later, but about how much is actually wasted, whether that's ultimately floating in the oceans or elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so another paper that we published in 2017, we looked at um, all of the plastic created ever, and that's eight billion metric tons as of the publishing of that paper. And the majority of that had already become waste. So about 6.4 billion metric tons had already become waste. And then the percentages in terms of what we had done with that, um, we had only recycled about 9.5%. Um, and then there was about 12% incinerated. So that means that nearly 80% of what we had created was either in a landfill or somewhere on our land or in our ocean. And, and when um, you say we, you mean U.S. or is this global? These are global this figures. This is global. Yeah. These are global figures. So, yep, the, the global we. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the U.S. we, does that, how does that square with other countries, particularly, let's say, Yeah, in the so EU. We're, we are about, on average, um, of the globe. So, so we recycle about 30% of our mixed waste, um, but in terms of the percentage of plastic that we recycle um, as a society in the U.S., we're at about 9% mm. ourselves. Wow, just mm-hmm. 9%. And, Jenna, what, what makes plastic so destructive as a pollutant, for example? Uh, is it just because it sits in the environment, or does it get into the fish, potentially even human consumption? Talk to me about that. Yeah, well, it's it's certainly a combination of different things. You know, it's a relatively new material that we had made. It doesn't biodegrade, so like other organic materials that sort of naturally biodegrade with microbes into, you know, the basic carbon molecules, uh, the plastics are polymers that really can't, the carbon can't be accessed. And so what they do over time in the environment is just fragment into these smaller and smaller pieces, um, and some maybe even too small for us to to detect yet um, in terms of, you know, getting to the nanoscale. But so much of it has focused on the microplastic, which are about the size of a pencil eraser and smaller. Um, and then, you know, things like microbeads that had ended up in cosmetic products are about the size of a tip of a pencil um, and smaller, and we can detect those. But we basically see then these fragments of plastic everywhere. Um, they're being consumed by the smallest animals in our food web, like zoop plankton, and we really don't know the the impacts of this yet. Um, Plastic can also absorb contaminants and so be a transport mechanism for contaminants and then also even invasive species. Um, And, you know, ingestion and entanglement are two of the the main ways that animals are impacted by plastic. So it's really on many fronts that it has impacts. And Jenna, so so much uh, is in our systems now, in our body burden. Do you believe that the tiniest fragments of plastic are in humans right now? Oh, we don't know. Um, you know, I mean, as a scientist, I haven't seen the evidence. Um, you know, we need to have evidence of that. But we, you know, are working on um, some research here at the university, some of my colleagues in the vet school, and they looked at um, micronized plastic in, in baby sea turtles. And um, through that process, they were able to detect uh, plastic at the nanoscale. And we know at nanoscale it can um, cross tissue layers. So, I mean, there is some indication, but we don't have the evidence yet. 
And Dr. Jambeck, I'm curious. So even let's say if there are microplastic sort of nanoscale polymers in our human bodies, some of ours, there's always the dose response. I mean, yeah. is it like with some things, no matter how small the exposure or the dose, it's still toxic and potentially really hazardous to our health or mm-hmm. not? What, what's known in this case? Um, that's a great question. We, we don't know. Um, we don't know yet because, we, again, detection at those nanoscale particles and then also synergistic effects um, of potential, you know, certainly at the lab scale you could control those, but in terms of our exposure to many things, um, you know, those experiments haven't been, been done yet or teased out in terms of the significant um, influence. And Laura Parker, this could be for you next. I know you've done so much reporting around the world on this. Um, More than you ever expected, I'm sure. Yeah. What's known on the science front about the mechanism? So, for instance, you've written a lot about the fish and the guts, but how plastic materials actually transported via water into the ocean, but particularly into, say, larval fish's gut or into the gut of larger fish, or for that matter, marine mammals, and potentially into humans? Uh, plastics are transported around the world um, in in many different ways. I, there was just a recent study out that it's it's uh, microplastics and smaller uh, particles are transported by the wind. But um, the part that is drawing most of the focus now is what's being transported uh, via the seas. It, it uh, spills uh, off of coastlines, as Jenna mentioned, and gets into the ocean, gets into the currents, and then it's uh, transported um, all around. Uh, and as it is in the ocean, it breaks down into microplastics. And what we're what you can see in terms of the harm is of the larger pieces. Uh, birds birds eat it. Virtually every seabird is eating plastics in some form. Mm. Uh, the larger pieces, uh, whales. We've had a spate of of whale deaths in the last several months where they found huge amounts of plastic, including uh, whole plastic bags inside whale guts, uh, which were the cause of the of the death of whales. Uh, but as the plastics break down into smaller and smaller particles where they are not uh, visible uh, to, to the, except under a microscope, uh, you will see that the smallest organisms are eating them. And we have just uh, have a piece in our May issue about uh, the fact that uh, larval fish or baby fish, as, as we say in our headline, are eating uh, tiny pieces of plastic now and the consequences of this on uh, their ability sur- to survive are unknown. Uh, yet in many respects, uh, it's, it's a serious question because uh, these larval fish are often eating plastic as they're, you know, within a few days of being born, and it's often their first meal. Mm, I haven't seen. We're going to take a brief uh, break here. You're listening to KGNU Radio Science Show, How on Earth. For listeners who are joining us late, my our guests are along with my guest host, Jeff Burnside. (laughs) Uh, And we're discussing the causes and potential solutions to the plastic waste crisis. And our guests are Laura Parker. She's a staff writer at National Geographic Magazine. And Dr. Jenna Jambach, an uh, engineering professor at the University of Georgia. And Jenna, um, speaking of tracking the the pathway of plastics into our ocean, you're going to back to the Ganges to, on an expedition to do more research on how it actually gets into the oceans. Is that correct? And what do you expect to find? 
Yeah, um, so I'm also uh, a National Geographic Fellow and um, co-leading this uh, international expedition with Dr. Heather Coldaway um, from the London Zoological Society. And um, we are, uh, yeah, doing this really uh, comprehensive study of the watershed and answering some of the questions that I think were remaining from um, some of my research, particularly how, how much uh, plastic actually gets into these waterways from the land. Um, and so part of that means we're doing some drift card studies. We're uh, sort of systematically, comprehensively tracking um, the mismanaged waste on the land. So it, my original paper was like a model, and this will be collecting a lot of empirical data. Um, we have, you know, a team of nearly 20 people. Um, this is, you know, all the way from the Bay of Bengal to the source of the Ganges River. So this iconic waterway that we can then sort of, in each of these locations that we stop, comprehensively study the land, the water, and the socioeconomic component, which is actually really critical to this issue in terms of involving people, um, not only in sort of the choices that we make every day and the impact on this issue, but the, the people coming up with solutions, those at the front lines helping to manage waste and those in the communities who are having to deal with this every day, um, working together with us to come up with solutions once we are able to help collect the data. Well, sounds like a fascinating expedition. And Laura Parker, yeah. you as a journalist may be going on that, right? That's correct. We're working out the details uh, uh, as, as we speak. Well, we'll look forward to hearing about that. But I'm curious, in all your reporting, I've read many of your articles where you're all over the world, Like, what stands out, something in particular that has really got under your skin? either shocked you or give you hope, made you feel a little more daunted, or, or what? What keeps you up at night? Uh, uh, I can't n name the number of places that are shocking, mm. uh, uh, whether it's uh, seeing uh, litter on the beaches. Uh, one of the most shocking is is right here in the United States, in Hawaii. It is uh, called, it's Camillo Beach on the Big Island, which is the closest stretch of beach to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is completely loaded with plastic uh, that comes in, washes in uh, from the Pacific Gyre. And uh, that's in a country that, uh, you know, we're not dealing with uh, poverty and, and the lack of, of municipal uh, waste collection systems. Um, this washes ashore and, and, and uh, is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, in terms of shocking, I, uh, in terms of uh, uh, animals, um, the, the, the study that the researchers at NOAA in Honolulu were working on in terms of floral fish eating plastics was uh, interesting to me because of the potential harm that is that could be there. And I have to emphasize that the consequences of all of this are still uh, being measured. This is the first time they've ever really been able to see what what larval fish uh, are eating in terms of plastic. And so uh, I, I don't want anyone to jump to conclusions, mm -hmm. but uh, the question is if the, these larval fish, the first thing they have to do after they uh, emerge from the egg is begin to eat and grow like crazy in order to survive. And if the first couple of meals or the first meal they're eating is plastic, uh, that raises questions about their survivability and then raises further questions about what is the impact on the marine food web, because yeah. some of the these larval fish uh, 
will have you know as they grow up become fish for other become food for other uh, marine creatures and so th- I think that there's uh, a lot of uh, unanswered questions that we need to get answers to on that front. Right. Well, so let's talk about solutions here before we get all too depressed. It's uh, <laughs> what, what do you think is going to have the most impact, Laura? I mean, let's let's say the, the planet has hired you as its consultant. What do you tell us to do in terms of the solution? Is it just about personal and consumer choices, or is it more about government policies mandating that the plastic manufacturers take a much bigger role? I think it's all of the above. I don't. I think this problem is so large and so global that it there is no one single solution. Uh, there were a group of scientists who wrote a paper, uh, or it was a, an editorial that was published a couple years ago, calling for a global treaty on plastic waste that would be fashioned after the Paris Climate Accords. That it, the whole world will have to get involved in this. Um, I, for the consumer, the individual person, I think that you should use your voice, educate yourself about your own community, re-examine your own use of plastic. Are there ways you can cut back? Are there ways that you can uh, reuse particular products, uh, reuse your shopping bags, that kind of thing. Uh, go to your city council meeting, find out about recycling in your community. Is it effective? Does it work? Uh, all of those things uh, help push this along. And Laura Parker, what are some approaches that have actually been effective, even if regionally? You know, for instance, what is it, 125 countries or something now have bans on plastic bags. We've got cities in the U.S., like Seattle, SF, we've got Nairobi, we've got Kigali, Rwanda. What what has, yeah, some examples, not necessarily just the, the bags, but uh, from a regulatory or policy and that have been effective? I think the, the issue of bans is kind of an interesting one to look at because that's that is the way that uh, the, uh, politicians or activists who push these bans uh, through their legislative body, whether it's a city council or a state legislature, uh, uh, can get the attention of the industry. Um, the bans are there are a lot of bans all over the country in the United States, uh, not at a at a federal level, but in uh, cities and counties, and uh, several states now have have banned things. Uh, Maine just banned uh, extended uh, polystyrene, which is the uh, white uh, uh, takeout food containers uh, made of foam. Uh, Maryland, the Maryland legislature has uh, passed a similar type of ban uh, just this spring, and the bill is uh, awaiting the governor's signature. Uh, and uh, many, many, many cities in California have, have passed uh, similar bans. And the, I think the point is that the, uh, the environmentalists will say, we need to get the industry's attention, and this is how we can do that. And uh, the industry is starting to respond uh, by trying to have more recycled content in, uh, in the products they make and uh, looking at product redesign to figure out uh, better solutions to end of life of various disposable products and that kind of thing. Yeah, Jenna, what about that? Um, are, are the manufacturers making progress with their research and development, their engineering advancements? Um, and it's, it's, it's not, it's among the manufacturers of the oil and gas industry. Sure. 
um, you know, I have a colleague in uh, who's director of our New Materials Institute, um, working with a lot of companies who are really interested in, you know, different materials and and redesigning products. And I think that's an important component as we think about sort of managing our waste stream. We we need to be thinking about that way upstream when we're picking materials and designing products. So there are uh, new biodegradable polymers, truly biodegradable polymers. We don't have time to get into the nuance of compostable, et cetera, but there are a lot of differences there, and unfortunately, a lot of greenwashing that had gone into that previously. But on the horizon are truly biodegradable polymers, designing products um, for reuse and better recycling. If they have value, they end up not leaking into the environment. So whether that's a value from a deposit return scheme or the material itself has inherent value, we don't find those leaking when we're collecting all of this data. And so we need to think about ways to incentivize that. We're out of time now, but we'll continue um, future conversations also on the sort of upstream and downstream issues around plastic. Our guests were Dr. Jenna Jembeck. She's an engineering associate professor at the University of Georgia, and Laura Parker, a staff writer at National Geographic magazine. And we'll link to their papers and articles and to the upcoming National Geographic Plastic Focused Expedition on our website, howonearthradio.org, later today. So, thank Laura, you. thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And, Jenna, thank you very, very much. Very insightful. Thanks so much. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and engineered by Evan Perkins. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Dade Mimbo. You got that right. <laughs> Visit our website on howonearth.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. And you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jeff Burnside. <laughs>